So I'm Mark Philp. Uh, I've worked on Godwin for a long time. Uh, I'm a member of the Department of Politics and International Relations. We ran a project digitising and editing uh, the diary of William Godwin, which runs from 1788 to 1836. It's now available online. Uh, you can find the URL on this website, uh, or you can just stick it into Google as Godwin's diary, and it will come up. So the diary is kept between 1788 and 1836, which is one of the most important periods in European history. Um, 1788 is the beginnings of the French Revolution that then uh, is uh, sparked off by the crisis in French finances that produces, uh, in the end, uh, the execution of the king um, and uh, European, in fact, almost kind of global war. Um, by 1805, one in five able-bodied men in Britain is in uniform. Um, so it's a tremendous kind of mobilisation uh, of, of the population in the war against France. Um, so the period runs from the cataclysmic events of the kind of French Revolution, the development of the war with Britain, uh, and the war lasts effectively on and off until about 1815. Uh, and the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, part of the response to the start of the French Revolution, uh, in Britain at least, was very positive. People thought this was a, a major kind of uh, step forward for France. Uh, and as a result of that, they began to think about their own political institutions and um, became uh, more demanding of kind of reform of the political system, which they saw as dominated by aristocratic cliques, very much kind of subordinate to the monarch. Uh, and uh, the House of Commons is very much corrupted by aristocratic influence and not um, providing the kind of the, the popular element of the constitution that it was supposed to provide. As popular protest, as popular debate around the French Revolution developed, you got some of the most famous kind of texts uh, of the period. Tom Paine's Rights of Man, Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Man and Vindication of the Rights of Woman, James Mackintosh's Vindicae Gallicae, all responding to Burke's reflections on the, the revolution in France. Uh, and the uh, sense of confrontation between a kind of loyalist, constitutionalist sort of uh, um, Toryism on the one hand and a growing kind of radical pressure that that sparked a series of kind of organisations amongst the kind of working classes and the artisan classes demanding reform. That sense of a growing confrontation is a very real one. What starts as a debate about France becomes increasingly a kind of polarised uh, struggle for um, reform in Britain, which leads to the treason trials of leading kind of radicals in 1794. Uh, and eventually the kind of suppression of the radical movement at the end of the um, 1790s. Though, of course, you know, finally, these kind of movements culminate in 1832 in the Reform Act. Uh, so there's, it's not that everything happens in the 1790s and you then have uh, uh, nothing thereafter. It's a long process of change in Britain. It's a long process of change in Europe. With all this political change comes. <clears throat> okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
gently reprimand you for about forgetting what the Irish are about in the oh. <laughs> Anyway, the period also sees uh, lots of change in the in the lit- world of literature. Most famously, of course, there are the Romantic poets William Wordsworth, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, William Blake, the so-called first generation, and a little bit later, John Keats, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and Lord Byron. Uh, so this, this poetry is uh, revolutionary, it is uh, engaged with the politics of the period. Uh, it's also arguably uh, disengaged. There is a sense that uh, critics argue that it, it's a, a, t- a turn away from the world. There's a growing sense of introspection, a concern with nature. Um, but, there's, but there's lots going on. Uh, but this period is not just about poetry, of course. There's lots of change in uh, the world of fiction. Uh, William Godwin, for instance, uh, his novel Caleb Williams uh, is commonly credited with being the first psychological novel, one of the first great political novels. Um, okay, it would be a mistake to think that this period is just about poetry. There's been a long tradition of romantic criticism that is kind of fixated on these, these six poets. Wonderful as, as, the, as the material is, it is not uh, the be-all and end-all of the period's literary output. Um, it is a very productive time in, in all fields and all genres of literature. Uh, the novel uh, becomes uh, intensely politicised, notably William Godwin himself, his novel Caleb Williams, uh, but there are a whole host of other people, Thomas Holcroft, Elizabeth Inchbold, for instance, uh, whose novels are getting more and more attention. Uh, the world of theatre also sees uh, incredible change, and I think this is important, um, not least because this, this, this concentration on the big white male romantic poets um, has, has, has left, um, has left the, the world of theatre somewhat, somewhat ignored. But uh, this, is, this is where much of, of uh, the population of Britain, uh, this is where they engage with literature in this sense. And this is where we see the public mood reflected and, 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 and much of the kind of political writing of the period, uh, despite an intense regime of censorship, this is the field, I think, where you get, you get people trying to use literature in an active sense, trying to change the way people think uh, and feel about the revolution, about political change. Uh, it's also uh, the period we see the rise of melodrama. Um, there's, a, there's an entry um, that, that says something about the execution of Louis. What, what's this about and how, what can it tell us about the events of the French Revolution and how Godwin was involved and also England at the time? Yes, the execution of Louis, uh, Louis XVI was a, uh, an important moment in, in French history, in British history uh, and European history more generally. What does the diary tell us about it? Well. I think what, what's interesting about this entry, I'll, I'll read it out. This is, an, this is the entry for the 21st of January, 1793. This is the date that Louis is executed. Uh, and uh, Godwin writes, Stuart calls, write to Morgan, Miss Godwin dines, Masters Oswar, execution of, of Louis. So if we take this entry, but, but perhaps it might be more useful to look at the, the entry for the following week or the following fortnight, because this, I think, gives us a real indication of of how, this is an absolute insight into how this, this event uh, affected uh, people uh, interested in politics, interested in, in, in what was going on in, in international affairs and how they started moving around. So there's a real sense of bustling London that emerges from the diary. 
one can, one can see almost in the, the, the density of the entries on the page that there's a heightened sense of excitement, there's a heightened sense of anxiety, um, what's going to happen, how are people shifting themselves, how are people positioning themselves. Um, so to take Godwin, so to take this entry, Walking Stuart Calls, or Stuart Calls, so this is Walking Stuart, who we've mentioned already in a previous podcast, and this is John Stuart, who had met Wordsworth in 1792, just a few weeks before um, uh, uh, this execution. Uh, and Walking Stuart was a man who had traversed India, who had walked uh, from, from India to the Persian Gulf down to Ethiopia into Central Africa. He then walked across Europe to Scandinavia, dressed in Armenian uh, clothing, and an opposing man of six feet tall who would randomly engage people in, in conversation. But he was very interested in, uh, he was in, um, in Paris at this moment, and he was interested. So it's, it's quite interesting that he, he, he calls on Godwin um, uh, at this time. Now, uh, it has to be said that, uh, as far as I'm aware, they wouldn't have actually known this would have happened at this point, that Godwin would have retrospectively written in that this had occurred. But I do think it's, they didn't know that this debate was happening at the time. The National Convention were talking about what were they going to do with this with this uh, this fallen despot. So it took 36 hours for the news to arrive from mm. Paris to London. Yeah. Um, that's about as fast as they could do it. He also, Godwin sits down and he rides to Morgan. Now we think this is probably George Cadogan Morgan, who's a dissenting minister who taught at Hoxton Academy, where Godwin, uh, which Godwin attended. And he was a nephew of Richard Price, uh, who gives the famous sermon that provokes Edmund Burke uh, in 1789. And uh, Morgan was uh, in Paris when the Bastille fell, and he was a big enthusiast uh, at this point for the French Revolution. So people are coming, they're calling on Godwin, he's writing to them. Uh, and later on in the week, he, uh, he sits down, he writes to the National Convention, he, um, he calls on Chauvin, the, the French um, ambassador, effectively, who was expelled that later that week from, from Britain as a direct result of, uh, of, um, of the execution uh, of, of Louis XVI. So that's, that's one sense that, 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 we, we, that, that how events in France affect Britain directly. You can see this in the activity that occurs in Godwin's diary. But it's also worth saying, I think, that, that, that we can see things, how things travel from Britain to, to France at this point in time, because Godwin sends over political justice um, uh, with this letter to, national, to the National Convention. So there is also a sense that, that people like Godwin want to contribute or uh, amend or improve or, or, or however we, we choose to describe it. Event. So there's a two-way process going on. So Political Justice was published about two weeks after the execution of Louis. Uh, so one of the things that he's doing when he calls on the French ambassador is to give him a copy, uh, an advanced copy. And uh, it's, I mean, it's symptomatic of Godwin's you know, bad luck that you know, after the execution of Louis, there's an almost immediate declaration of war between Britain and France. Uh, and then political justice appears. Uh, so while political justice is, on the one hand, you know, hugely influential amongst kind of literary uh, and kind of more philosophically kind of minded, it also identifies him as a radical who might need sort of um, 
Uh, well, there's some suggestion that the Privy Council looked at political justice with a view to prosecuting it for sedition. Uh, and Godwin himself was concerned about that prospect and was also concerned about the prospect of prosecution for the publication of Caleb Williams. Uh, and there was a preface that he wrote for Caleb Williams that he withheld for the first edition. Uh, but it's clear that what he's, you know, in a sense, the, the optimism of the early years of the French Revolution is distilled in political justice, and it appears just at the point at which that optimism begins to look as though it's going to be unfounded because of the extent to which the French Revolution has generated not more peaceful relationships between Britain and France, but actually the beginning of what will become a global war. And the execution of Louis is, is, is an important, significant moment, a sort of symbolic moment, I suppose. But it follows the September massacres of 1792, which are probably more important in the sense that the hold that this event, slaughter of 5,000 people on the streets of Paris, took hold of the English imagination. Burke's fears, Edmund Burke and Reflections Revolution in France, writes about the swinish multitudes, these horrific harpy women that... Um, uh, that, have, that have invaded uh, the palace and, and, and uh, overturned their, their, the society there. So, so this is a sense that the Burke has proved to be right, that this, this prophecy seems to be unfolding. This is, um, this is part of the sort of paranoia and fears that, that Godwin and, and his book, Political Justice, had to combat. And of course, you know, part of the reason that the September massacres happened was that there was a huge army outside sort of Paris that they thought was about to invade and uh, you know, uh, there was a concern that the prisoners that would be kind of counter-revolutionaries you know, and so on. The reason there was a huge army outside was partly because Burke wrote the reflections on the revolution in France. You know. So it's a complicated story. The other thing to say about the entry is it's one of the few things where there's actually some kind of statement in the diary. Um, they don't happen very often. You know, execution of Louis is one voided a large worm is another later in the 19... I think it's the 1920s. Uh, yeah. So when he writes something, it means something, because it happens very, very rarely. OK, um, on the 13th of February, 1790, um, Godwin does an entry about anti-tests. What's going on here, and how is it important to Godwin? In 1790, this entry, Antitests, uh, is a very interesting one. Um, the Antitest refers to 17th century legislation, the Test Act and the Corporation Act, uh, which were effectively penal laws um, against Catholics and non-conforming Protestants, uh, brought in the wake of the, of the Restoration. These pieces of legislation uh, had been enforced for a long period of time, and what they meant was that you couldn't attend, uh, you couldn't uh, be awarded a degree from Oxford or Cambridge, you were excluded from public office, uh, and these were, these were the, the sort of basic implications of it. 1790 uh, saw the last attempt uh, of, of, of a number of attempts in the, in the previous two or three years to repeal these acts. Uh, now, what's interesting is this, this had been going on for quite a long time, throughout the 18th century, uh, back to Bishops Sherlock and Hoadley, uh, who engaged in this debate in the earlier part of the, the 18th century. And a lot of their pamphlets were then reprinted 
uh, and the same arguments used in the 1780s in the build-up to this 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 uh, this movement to repeal these these bits of legislation in uh, 1788 to 1792, and effectively what this debate about was about was about the degree of separation of church and state. Uh, so to what degree did people feel that be, being a member of the Anglican Church was to uh, carrying out a, a civil service post? Okay. Uh, dissenters, of, of whom Godwin was one, uh, felt that uh, their religion, their, their religious belief, should not be a bar uh, to their participation in the British uh, civic sphere. Uh, so that's the that's kind of broad overview of it. So Godwin being involved, why is it important to him? Well, it's, it's important for the very obvious reason that he is a dissenter. Um, but it's also important because in 1790, this, this shows, I think, the kind of people that he's mixing with. Charles James Fox, Henry Beaufoy, who kind of led the, the MPs who led it in Parliament, but also Brand Hollis, Alexander Geddes, Richard Watson. These are very prominent dissenters, men, men of the church, who, uh, who Godwin is now mixing with after. He, he comes to London in 1783, and uh, this, I think, is a demonstration of, of how far he'd, he'd risen in, in the kind of social uh, world of, of London. So his participation is very significant uh, from that sense. On, on a personal level, uh, I think it helps think about Godwin's relationships with these people and also others who aren't at, this, at, this, at these anti-test meetings, which uh, he goes to uh, in 1790. So Thomas Holcroft, his best friend, uh, a eminent uh, playwright at this point, playwright and novelist at this point, he, uh, he meets Godwin in 1786. They become, uh, according to Godwin, uh, intimate in 1788. Uh, and he later called him his principal oral instructor. So what's interesting, what, what these entries show is that Holcroft is excluded from this. One might assume that he would be present part of this. So the question is, why is he not involved? Uh, I don't think I have a very clear answer to that. I think it's likely that, that uh, Holcroft may not have quite been of the, the required requisite social status. That, that would be my sense, because he is a deeply politicised man. Of course, it may be that he didn't feel terribly interested in it, but I think that's quite unlikely. But what's interesting, I suppose, more broadly, is this sense that uh, there's a danger, I think, always talking about this period, about radicals and reformers, and some, as if they're all the same. What the diary helps us think about is how within the radical world, or the reformer world, there are these different levels, and that social standing is important there, and different different ideas uh, circulate, and there is opposition. So the other thing that's interesting about this that you know you need a bit of context for is, of course, we're used to thinking of Burke's ref reflections on the revolution in France as a, a book about France, but it starts with an attack on the dissenters. Uh, I mean, its uh, its key focus is a, a, a speech that Richard Price gave um, uh, in 1789, uh, welcoming the events of the French Revolution. But it's pretty clear that Burke himself was very unhappy with the attempts to repeal the uh, Test and Corporations Act, and was very concerned that the Whig Party was becoming too associated with a group that he thought of as radical enthusiasts. Uh, so, uh, in many respects, the, the, the broader kind of context for the anti-test dinner is that this is part of 
the development of a domestic political row that fuses with the issues of the French Revolution uh, to produce the kind of the, the polarized sort of uh, confrontation between radicals and kind of loyalists uh, in the 1790s. And Burke was, was somewhat, had been sympathetic to dissenters previously. He was obviously very sympathetic to Irish Catholics uh, earlier, but he felt that this was the wrong time for reform. And Burke effectively kills the, the repeal, which there have been three, three votes, I think, 1789 and 1790. And, and between 1788 and 1789, it's clear that there's growing support. Uh, but then the French Revolution happens and everything changes. And Burke withdraws his, uh, his support uh, and is, is instrumental in, in killing it. So again, there is this sense of, of this fear of volatility spilling into Britain uh, that's indicated around, yeah. this, the, around this, this debate, which is, as I said, has been going on for the whole of the 18th, 18th century. So it's important, I think, to remember that, as, as Mark has, has suggested, that the debates and some of the ideas that are in circulation uh, in the 1790s are not just coming from 1789. Everything doesn't just start there in 1789. That goes right back to, the, indeed, the 17th century. And, of course, the 13th of February, which is when the anti-tests die, is very shortly before Burke's speech on the army estimates, which is the first point at which he makes clear his hostility to events in France in a public forum. Uh, and it's difficult to believe that he's not doing it in part because he's already associating events with France with the kind of conflicts that already exist within the British political system. The other thing that occurs in 1790, which the diary uh, uh, tells us about, is that Godwin starts writing a play called St. Dunstan. Uh, Caleb Williams is what Godwin's most famous for uh, in, the, in the world of literature. And it's often thought of as a novel which responds to the French Revolution, which of course it does uh, in some ways. But it's, what's interesting is that the diary shows us that St. Dunstan is in fact his first response to, to this debate uh, that's going on. Uh, but also uh, themes in the play such as fears of, of mob action and, uh, and, uh, and, and crowds, the sort of sentiments that you do find in Burke, also appear in, in Godwin's play. Um, so there's two points to be noted here. One, that Godwin sees the theatre as the first place to respond to uh, what's, what's happening both in Britain and in France. And secondly, uh, as political justice demonstrates, that, that again, this point about reform is not over. One, that Godwin has himself quite conservative tendencies, that he's not just a, uh, an anarchist, a, a radical. It's, 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 it's more complicated than that. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's very concerned not to be thought of as an enthusiast. Um, yeah. He wants to be known as a man of reason, and he's concerned that uh, dramatic political events tend to generate huge emotion and so on, and that leads people to act in ways that he's, he simply can't kind of endorse. Um, so he's, you know, he's a conservative radical. Mm. Well, we might make one final point about the fact that... Godwin going to these meetings is an indication that he is participating in politics in, in a real way. When he writes political justice, uh, he famously disassociates himself with political association, with sort of debating societies that were advocating uh, reforming ideas. He distances himself from that quite explicitly. But here he's going to meetings. Uh, so to think of Godwin as this abstract, aloof 
political philosopher isn't entirely accurate. He does participate in politics when he agrees with them. Yeah.